Welcome to Always Andersonville, the podcast. If you've listened to us before, welcome back. And if you are joining us for the first time, hello, we are glad that you're here. Always Andersonville is more than about Andersonville. It is about the people and what brought them here and why they stay. It is about creating community and sharing and celebrating the stories that unite us as a neighborhood. We have been on hiatus for a while, and we are so happy to be returning with this special on-location episode at Women and Children First. Today, we feature three longstanding members of the Andersonville community in conversation about shopping local and the 2014 Andersonville study, which spawned the Small Business Saturday movement. We are thrilled to welcome Ellen Shepard to the podcast for the first time. Ellen served as the Andersonville Chamber of Commerce Executive Director from 1999 to 2016. After leaving Andersonville, Ellen started Community Allies, which works in cities across the United States to support equitable local economies and empower community voices. She most recently led community engagement for a national project to improve conditions for small businesses owned by people of color. Our next guest is Anne Christofferson. Throughout her lifetime, Anne has distinguished herself as a business owner, political activist, and advocate for the needs of women, children, and the lesbian community of Chicago. Anne opened Women and Children First in 1979 with Linda Bubin, and in 1990, they moved to their current location in the Andersonville neighborhood. Lastly, I am proud to introduce this episode's moderator, current co-owner of Women and Children First Bookstore, Lynn Mooney. In 2014, Lynn Mooney and Sarah Hollenbeck purchased Women and Children First. The change in ownership kept the store in the family and renewed the strength and vitality of the bookstore's mission. Women and Children First strives to offer a place where everyone can find books that reflect their lives and interests in an atmosphere in which they are respected and valued. We hope you enjoy this very special episode, and we hope that it inspires you to shop local this holiday season. I know today we're going to talk a lot about uh, the history of Andersonville since around the year 2000, but it might be interesting to hear about what the neighborhood was like before that and also um, what the role of small locally owned businesses before that. Yeah, well, I can jump in with that, Lynn. So um, I think one of the really interesting things about Andersonville is the critical role that locally owned businesses have played almost from the very start and even like going way, way, way back. Andersonville was first formed by the Swedish community after the uh, Great Chicago Fire in 1871. They couldn't build log cabins in the neighborhoods where they were anymore. So they moved up here where that wasn't incorporated and didn't have uh, fire laws. And they started little businesses that began immediately to populate Clark Street. And you'd see lots of different Swedish business names. But by the time the 1960s came around, Andersonville, like a lot of other urban neighborhoods across the country, was experiencing a period of decline. Uh, people were moving out to the suburbs. The highways had been built and made it really easy for people to leave the city. And they did. And so Andersonville was starting to become filled with vacancies, but it still had this really strong core of locally owned independent businesses. And there was a group of local business owners who got together and said, well, what can we do? What's unique about this neighborhood? How can we make sure that this neighborhood sustains? And so the local businesses got together and thought, well, what's unique about this place is that it's Swedish. And how do we market 
to the rest of the world that this is a unique Swedish community. And before then, Andersonville wasn't called Andersonville. It was just considered part of Uptown. And the name of the Andersonville Chamber of Commerce was the Uptown Business Owners Association. And in 1964, they thought, let's really ground us in our Swedish roots. And so they named the community officially Andersonville. And there's some controversy about whether that was named after a a minister or a farmer. Um, One was Norwegian, one was Swedish. So it was a big Mm. to do. (laughs) Uh, But they named it Andersonville. And the next year in 1965, they started Midsummer Fest. And it was really these small business owners that saved the neighborhood and made the neighborhood stable for many generations to come. Uh, In the 1980s, Andersonville again was experiencing some sense of decline. And there was a a local banker, and it was where U.S. Bank is now. I forget what the name of that bank was at the time. But he was the president of that bank. He lived in Edgewater. And where other banks wouldn't give loans for small business owners to open businesses in Andersonville, uh, Bud Wyman, who was this gentleman from the bank, thought, this is my neighborhood, and I know the people here, so I can lend on the basis of relationships. And so he went around to some of his neighbors and tried to talk people into opening stores to fill some of the vacant storefronts. One of those people was Jan Baxter, who we all knew and loved. And Jan was a single mom raising her kids on Rasher. And she had a background in wholesale, but not retail. And he said, why don't you open a store? I'll give you some money. And again, based on relationships, a chain bank would never have done it, but local bank, local financing, Bud said, I'll give you the money. And she opened the landmark of Andersonville right at the corner of the northeast corner of Clark and Berwyn. And the cool thing about the landmark, as Anne will remember, is that she opened it as a cooperative because she couldn't afford the rent on her own. So she invited some of her neighbors to come and open small businesses there. And uh, those businesses, as they grew enough to be stable on their own, went and populated other storefronts all up and down the street. So even before it was a popular thing, the landmark of Andersonville operated as an incredibly successful small business incubator, thanks to thanks to local banking and local money. And a lot of those were women-owned businesses. Yeah, a lot of those were women-owned businesses. Um, And then some really important women-owned businesses also came to the neighborhood not long after that. Yeah. And I can speak to, we moved to the neighborhood, Women and Children First Bookstore moved to the neighborhood in 1990. And the kind of proactivity that Ellen was just describing in terms of neighbor, you know, businesses that were here getting together and saying, how can we, you know, how can we grow small businesses here? The same thing happened to us, which is how we ended up here, which is to say um, women who were part of the Edgewater Community Count. I'm not sure, actually, I can't remember the name. It was Edgewater Community something really courted us. They heard that we were moving from the location in Lincoln Park, where we'd been for 11 years, and said, hey, come look up in Andersonville. Andersonville, we think it'd be a good fit for your bookstore here. And and also a woman named Marion Bellini, who was had been an alder person in this ward. She was a real estate agent at the time we were looking, and she was so helpful in trying to, you know, get a good lease for us in a good location, the location we're still in. Um, so, you know, we felt 
we felt brought into the neighborhood. We were brought into the neighborhood. And once we started becoming part of the community, people were incredibly welcoming. I remember, remember Jan Baxter, first among them, you know, who was here before we opened when we were moving in and getting set up. And everybody was like that. Debbie at Debbie at uh, Debbie Tunney at um, Anne Sathers, which was a restaurant just down the street in the days we moved in. So it, it, this neighborhood has very long history and a continuing history of, of seeking out small businesses and supporting them. I'd always heard that one of the reasons Women and Children First was recruited was they had a hunch that a bookstore would drive foot traffic and bring foot traffic to all the other businesses. Yeah. And I think that turned out to be true. I think it did. Yeah. And and I think you bring up also something that I think I think of Jan as being the heart of, but there was a, a spirit throughout the neighborhood of cooperation and yes. support. Yes. I remember Jan, she she was always excited when she heard that another retailer was coming. She never thought of it as competition. She thought more is better for all of us. And she ended up mentoring, even though the people who didn't start at the landmark, she just mentored other businesses all up and down the street. Right. Right. She did. She was, Jan was such, you know, as you say, the heart of the community and really important. You mentioned vacancies, I think. You have a funny story about Jan and oh, yeah. a rumor. Yes. So I think this was in the early 2000s. And by that time, like I would say that throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, Andersonville was a neighborhood. It was sort of like one of the city's best kept secrets. There was an artist community that had started to move here. Obviously, there was a lesbian community and a women's community that had moved because of the bookstore. And there was a huge population, a really strong population of women owned businesses all up and down the street, which right. was pretty distinctive, right? The Tribune wrote a big story about right. it because <clears throat> yep. it was unusual at the time. Well, and we ended up deciding this was a good place to come. Um, well, and I, I'll backtrack for a second and say, and when we came up here, another woman-owned business called uh, Woman Wild that sold a variety of uh, women-made crafts um, and other items opened in the space immediately adjacent to us. Um, we have since, when they closed, we moved into their space. We needed more space. But that was a very nice complementary business for a while. And what I was going to say before was we did a sort of informal demographic study bit before we moved up here because it was a significant move to, from Lincoln Park um, to here because people are kind of known for staying in their neighborhoods and, uh, you know, not necessarily venturing very far. So we did a uh, zip code, just a zip code analysis. We had people write down their zip codes when they came into the store. And we discovered that there were a fair number of our customers already here. So that gave us a comfort level to move up here and, <laughs> and uh, think that our business would be successful here. Yeah. But, but I think like if you had asked people outside of sort of a small core and plus, you know, people who'd been here for generations and were raising their families here. Right. Andersonville was not on people's radars. People right. who lived downtown, they weren't thinking about, right. you know, a night out on the town. I'll come to Andersonville. Right. Um, but because of Women and Children First and Kopi and Andes and Reza's had been around for a long time, Hop Leaf was opening, it was starting to get a vibe. 
and um, and the disposable income in the community was starting to go up. And so by the early 2000s, the uh, chain stores were starting to hear about us and get interested in coming in. And the story that you mentioned, Lynn, was there was a rumor, it was unfounded, but there was a rumor that there was a gap that was interested in coming into the neighborhood and it was going to move into this central location where the landmark was. And Jan, being a savvy business person with a great sense of humor, <laughs> put a note on her door that said, without us, there'd be a, in big capital letters, a gap in the neighborhood. <laughs> and it freaked people out, but it also got them thinking, well, what would happen if these local businesses were displaced by the gap and by other chains that were popular at the time? What would that mean? And it really had a lot to do with what, what happened next. I also think about there were so many partners in this work. There are elected officials. Mm. We've talked about um, the, the local bankers who had an appreciation for the talent of the people in their home neighborhood. Um, I know we've made use of the work of architects in our neighborhood. Yeah. Um, are those things you could talk about a little yeah, bit? Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, so you said local elected officials, Marianne Smith and Patrick O'Connor, who were the aldermen at the time, really championed money to give the uh, the commercial district a, a a facelift. They put they got the city to put millions of dollars into what was called the streetscape, which still is out there today. The planters and the benches, the little brick along the sidewalk, the street poles, the Andersonville, big metal signs. Um, that all happened in the early 2000s because of those elected officials. And then Andersonville looks the way it does in huge part because of Tom Green, who is a local architect and really championed and put together design guidelines, both for that streetscape and also for individual storefronts to make sure that the neighborhood retained that sort of pedestrian scale, walkable feel that made you want to go from store to store. And I would add to that um, that Tom Green was on the Andersonville Chamber of Commerce, as were, mm. you know, as was Jan Baxter for a number of years. And uh, Ellen was uh, was the ED of the Andersonville Council um, at the time that I, or Chamber of Commerce at the time that I joined. And the chamber consisted of a bunch of activists for the most part. Mm. It was, uh, in my view, it wasn't a traditional chamber of commerce, which by traditional, I mean sort of conservative, go with the status quo, you know, work the system to this extent that you could, but rather quietly. We weren't under Ellen's leadership, a quiet group. You know, we were really interested in maintaining that spirit of proactivity, of uh, doing things, thinking about the neighborhood, coming up with ideas for how the various businesses in the neighborhood could work together to promote the neighborhood as a whole, and not just our own individual businesses. And there were a lot of very creative ideas that came out of that period, many of which are still practiced today. Yeah, that's right. I think about the arts walk and the wine walk and the right. dessert crawl and the way Midsummerfest has grown. And, right. Um, that that all the seeds of that were all started back then, right? And and you know and advocacy on part of the of the members of the chamber who saw the important work that the chamber was doing for all of us, and 
you know, who really encouraged, tried to encourage businesses who weren't members of the chamber and weren't necessarily participating in all the programs that is, you know, was part of the force that developed Andersonville into, uh, you know, the the uh, recognized and well-traveled and uh, destination that it became, um, you know, getting you know, full-hearted participation in, in the, the activities that the neighborhood was coming up with was really important and part of the work. Anne was, oh, I'm sorry, Lynn. I was just going to say, I, I think um, all that local passion and creativity um, and leadership was important uh, in so many ways, but it was also a time when things were coming to a head on the national scene. And we were both a leader in that and also a beneficiary of that. Um, and Ellen, I think you were the linchpin. You know, I, sort of, but I think it actually started with Anne, right? It was around that time when you were involved with the National Booksellers Association and then got involved with Bali. Right. That was in uh, the when I went on the board of the American Booksellers Association, which is bookstore, independent bookstores, national trade organization. Um, there was a lot of fervor being generated by independent bookstores across the country because it, you know, in the 90s, you know, early 90s was when uh, superstores, there had been superstore bookstores before, but there wasn't the madhouse development that started in the 90s where borders would open on this block and Barnes and Noble would open on the block next to them. And both of them would open next to an independent bookstore that had been flourishing uh, until they moved in. Intentionally. Intentionally. Yeah, that's right. It was part of a, a strategy that came to be called predatory. You know, in other words, there was clearly a strategy to kind of move the independents on out and take over their customers and, uh, you know, monopolize, you know, and then the big guys were duking it out with each other, but it was all of, um, a, a monopoly intent behind the, the strategy. So Amer when I joined the American Booksellers Association's board in 1996, um, Booksellers across the country were hurting. They were really interested. I mean, a lot had been closing. It clearly, we needed a strategy to, um, you know, we needed a strategy to combat the strategy that started had started growing up around us. So um, there's a lot of detail to that, but it was coincidentally when I joined joined the board, the Northern California Independent Bookstore Association, which was an, a, re, a regional organization, part of the national organization, presented a plan that they called BookSense that had many elements to it, but was was primarily a sort of marketing strategy to position independent bookstores and why they were important and how their very uniqueness and independence and diversity was an enormous value that they, we, each individual of the 2,000 
member stores at the time brought to our own communities. You know, so, uh, you know, our strategy without going into a lot of detail about it was to champion independence, to champion uniqueness, to champion what made neighborhoods interesting. You know, um, you could go to a neighborhood that has the same old, same old Barnes and Noble and borders, uh, or you could go to a neighborhood like Andersonville, where we were one of the independent bookstores. But when we came here, there was a specialty bookstore up the street also. So you could have two very different bookstores in the same community rather than one behemoth uh, bookstore that had no unique characteristics that didn't, you know, who looked like, who looked pretty much like the next Barnes and Noble you'd go into, um, and who didn't provide all the services, all the friendly, you know, know your customer kind of attributes that we had that didn't, that weren't pouring taxes, you know, tax money back into the local community who were for instance, hiring from the local community, all of the people who were involved from accountants to bank, to the bankers, to um, the, you know, the cleaning services, to, to the, you know, hundreds of other players in a small independent business. All that stayed in the local community. So we were trying to bring to the public, uh, those who weren't already conscious of the importance of independent businesses, the attributes that were, they might want to, you know, consider when deciding whether they wanted to promote kinds of policies that would keep a neighborhood independent with independent businesses, um, rather than go to the Gap or go to the Target or go to the Barnes and Noble. Anne is talking about a kind of distinctness and vibrancy, but she also is mentioning something that later became known as the multiplier effect. And I think it might be time to talk about data. Yeah. So, Anne, you were talking about some of the emotional, but also then getting into some of the economic reasons why we've realized that these local independent businesses are so important and better, better for our communities. That was my segue. Oh, good. <laughs> well done. Sorry. Um, <laughs> too soon. No, it's great. Uh, so around 2003, 2004, we also had this sense of what's going to happen if the neighborhood starts to shift over. We were watching other communities that were beginning to shift from a strip of local businesses to non-local businesses and seeing those communities start to falter because the character was changing. The rents were going up. People figured, well, I can go to the mall if I want to go to the Gap. Why should I worry about city parking and come to a neighborhood? Um, but we were in the field of economic development, so we wanted to think about it in terms of actual data in addition to the emotional part of it. Uh, we, Anne at that time, had gotten uh, a call from a, a national organization that was just forming called BALI, the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies. And Anne, you were a speaker at the first event that they did here in Chicago. Right. I remember that. Yeah. And I, I went and I heard Ann speak and I heard a couple other folks speak. And I had this like lightning bolt moment of like, oh, this makes so much sense. And through that, we found out about a study that had just been done in Austin, Texas. In Austin, there's this uh, main street that has one of the country's most successful independent bookstores. Um, 
book people on one corner. It has one of the country's most successful independent record stores, Waterloo Records on one corner. And Kitty Corner from them, the city of Austin decided it would be a great idea to subsidize borders in a huge development. And luckily, uh, there were two guys who were fresh out of urban planning grad school in Austin and had just formed an independent consulting firm. This was uh, Dan Houston and Matt Cunningham. And Shoshana Cohen, who worked at the chamber at the time with me, did a little bit of uh, research and discovered that Matt Cunningham had not only just moved to Chicago, but he had just moved to Andersonville. <laughs> and um, they had completed a study in Austin that looked at if you spent $100 at a chain bookstore, and specifically at Borders, what happens to that $100 versus if you spend it at Waterloo Records or Book People? And what they found is that that money stays and recirculates in the local economy if you spend it at the chains, because as Anne said, the owners are spending are they spending their profit. If you spend it at the locals, whoops, um, because the money... Uh, the, the owner's profit stays. They spend their they're spending their money locally. Um, they're hiring local hiring local workers completely from upper level management all the way down to to the lowest level person. And those folks are respending their money in the community. Um, they are purchasing more locally, as Anne said, the local accountant and the graphic designer. And they also give. There was one study that showed two hundred and fifty percent more to local charities than the non-local businesses do. So economically, those businesses are really important. In Austin, that study ended up sending borders scurrying away with their tail between its legs. But then also, Matt and Dan were looking for a community where they could do a much broader study than just books and record stores. And they needed a community with an organization that was really well connected to the business owners so the business owners would trust that they could open up their books. And Matt was in Andersonville, and thus the 2004 Andersonville Study of Retail Economics was, was created. And I would I would add to what Ellen just described, or really it's a sequential point, is that the American Booksellers Association took up that study um, and formed, you know, bookstores nationwide of its availability, um, posted it on our website, the ABA website, so that everybody had access to it. And as Booksellers all over the country started organizing um, along the same lines that, you know, book people had in Austin and that, you know, our chamber was doing uh, here. So booksellers and bookstores got together and local organization and regional and local organizations and used that study as one of a number of tools to promote the idea in their own communities to bring that to the community level. And American Booksellers Association had also been very proactive in bringing uh, speakers from the uh, uh, Stacey Mitchell from uh, Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Yes. Institute for Local Self-Reliance. So um, it was at the ABA was at all levels you know, encouraging bookstores, giving bookstores the tools to organize in their own communities, to spread this information wide. And 
booksellers get together frequently, you know, in in uh, an organization and talk to each other. Um, so booksellers were spearheaded. In fact, uh, the local reliance, you know, independent uh, business movement in a lot of their communities. That's right. And I think the Andersonville study then gave those communities the data on more than just books and record stores to think this is a community wide thing. And we need to be thinking about this both in terms of all of our local retail and services and our neighborhood commercial districts, but also cities started thinking, what does this mean in terms of who we as a city are buying office supplies from? If we buy it from the chain store versus our local office supply store, we're actually sending a lot of our money out out of state. We could be spending it right here. And then there were further studies that showed that local businesses are better at job creation, at job retention. Um, we know that local businesses uh, tend to be more resilient. I remember in the economic crash of 2008 and then again during COVID, the local businesses stick around because it's their livelihood and it's their place and because the people in that place are committed to them. Whereas the chain stores were like, eh, it's just another outlet. We can yeah. we can close this down. Our shareholders aren't making money. So yeah, the economics were, were really there and that Andersonville study ended up, we, we promoted it heavily. Um, it got airplay in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. We had cities from all over the country and even all over the world calling our office to say, how did you do it? How can we recreate it? We're experiencing the same kind of thing in our neighborhood. So yeah, it really made quite a big splash. Do you remember how American Express got interested? How they heard about it? I think by the time American Express started Small Business Saturday in 2010, I think that that sense of shop local first was just in the air, was something that people were thinking about. Um, And I think Amex saw a business opportunity, you know, and wanted to, I'm assuming, wanted to have a larger pool of small businesses. And so with their marketing power, they created Small Business Saturday, which has now become, I mean, it's still going on every year, right? And it's important. It's uh, it's a, a wonderful and important counter to Black Friday to remind people of how important it is to invest in their communities and in the local businesses that actually give back to their communities. Ellen, could you share with us some of those results from the Andersonville study? Yeah. So the the most salient thing that the study found was what they called a 70% local premium, meaning that every time you spend money at a local store as opposed to a chain store, 70% more money stays and recirculates in the local economy because it's not getting shipped back to that chain store, uh, shareholders, to their upper level management, which are all in another city or across the country. So it's really important when you think about supporting your local community um, that you're literally investing with your dollars. You're investing in what's valuable to you here on Clark Street. You're you're investing in Andersonville. You're investing on uh, on what you love and probably why you moved here to this neighborhood every time you support a local business because your money is staying and bouncing around and, and supporting local employment. It's supporting um, other local businesses that those businesses also do business with. It's supporting sort of the vibrancy of this community that you love. One thing we haven't talked about at all is the idea of an unlevel playing field and how that factors into all this. Well, I'll jump in on that for a minute. That was a big issue in the 90s in the early 2000s for the American Booksellers Association. The issue was addressed first with chain bookstores who were able to pressure all kinds of unfair pressure publishers for all kinds of 
unfair um, discounts, what was called co-op advertising, and other actual financial deals that weren't available to independents. So it was like, oh, here, Borders and Barnes and Noble, here's $200,000 to put some books, some of our books on, you know, at the front of your store. And, oh, we'll only charge or we were, we are going to uh, ask Random House to give us an extra discount because we buy uh, a certain quantity of books. They had power. They had accumulated market power so that they could make demands that smaller entities couldn't. And it's the very definition of monopoly. You know, they got to control the market due to their buying power even though that buying power didn't justify the special deals they were getting. And uh, the American Booksellers Association actually sued publishers and then sued the bookstores. It was uh, the bookstore case was one I was involved in. It took place in the Ninth District Court in California. And um, we didn't end up, it, you know, it's very hard to win antitrust cases because you have to show intent. You had to show not only intent, but knowledge that you're, you know, this, the Borders and Barnes and Noble in this case were bringing, were knowingly, uh, you know, promoting, were asking for these kinds of discounts and deals, which of course they were, but there was no evidence evidence to supply that anyway. Um, after that, the Booksellers Association started focusing uh, more and more on doing uh, things that promoted independence, and we let go of trying to legally pressure, um, you know, monop store monopolies. So that was, we've talked about that to a, to a pretty great extent now. But then also we turned our attention to Amazon because the problem with Amazon, you know, Amazon kind of stepped in and in the midst of these struggles and actually brought some of the large chain bookstores, which had been our major competitors for a while, to their knees because uh, Amazon got even better deals from publishers. They got even more market share. I mean, not publishers, but chain stores. They got even, uh, they could force really um, terrible, uh, uh, they used their power to, for instance, require publishers to sell to them at the prices they, Amazon, demanded. And it put lots of small independent publishers out of business. The books that Amazon would buy sometimes or, you know, often uh, wouldn't sell and would be returned. Some of the same problems as with the um, uh, mega bookstores. But the big issue for the ABA was the tax disadvantage because Amazon uh, wasn't required to, in, in most states, to charge sales tax. So here again, the competitive advantage for Amazon was enormous. They were able to sell books at a discount because of the deals they got from publishers. And then besides that, they got to ship those books 
and not pay any state ta- sales tax. So a lot of our organizing efforts at ABA and local organizations, which were at this point well-established, turned our attention to, you know, uh, even playing field with Amazon in the sales tax issue. And in fact, um, we were very involved in that and met with our elected officials and got, once again, one of our great aldermen on our side and some state reps to bring this before uh, the the state legislature and really, and we worked in uh, conjunction with the National Federal, National Retail Federation of, because this was hurting all independent businesses. But it was a successful effort. Yeah. Well, yes, sort of, you know, it's hard to, you know, it's sort of one small step, although collectively, we have made enormous progress in many respects, which is why Women and Children First is still here today, while independent bookstores, for instance, have started coming back. So we have growth now where all we saw was loss for a number of years. Well, and I think you bring up a really important point, Anne. I think sometimes these local first initiatives can be relegated to this thought of like, oh, you have to help them because they need help. But the reality is the playing field isn't level, especially now with Amazon. I mean, they own not only the means of like the, the marketing, the, the platform on which it's things are being sold, but they own the marketing, they own the web platform, they own the distribution channels, they put their own products first. Um before, you know, they, they give priority to their own products over others. Uh, I know the Institute for Local Self-Reliance and others have been involved in a, some pretty serious antitrust initiatives now. So when we think about these local businesses, the fact that Women and Children First and all of the businesses all up and down the street have survived and thrived in the face of this just proves how incredibly strong they are and how strong this local business model is. Yeah, it's amazing how many businesses have been here for 30 years or more. Our bookstore is about to celebrate its 43rd anniversary later this year. Hopleaf has been here for 30 years. The Swedish American Museum has been here for 45 years. Um, Also, bringing things up to the current moment, uh, last fall in October, Time Out named Andersonville the second coolest neighborhood in the world, second only to Norebo Norebo in Copenhagen. And again, just the fact to sort of amplify and prove the fact that locally owned businesses tend to stick it out um, and not be deterred by... Difficult situations like a pandemic, for instance. Um, currently on Clark Street, our storefront vacancy rate is under 6%. Um, and that's astounding and remarkable. Uh, most communities in the United States right now with shopping districts, their, their vacancy rate is more like 20%. Um, you know, one of the reasons that uh, the bookstore fared so well during the pandemic, uh, did remarkably well, was that our customers, you know, our our customers are very invested in this bookstore and keeping it around. And they shopped at womenandchildrenfirst.com and picked up their books outside in the front of the store or in the back of the store when businesses were shut down. We couldn't even allow people in the store 
especially in the early months of the pandemic. So, uh, you know, independent bookstores, uh, not bookstores, sorry, independent businesses almost all have websites now. And you can purchase books from us, from Women and Children First, from your other favorite stores um, when there's a pandemic. God forbid there's another one on our footsteps, but you never know. Um, but think of us, instead of going to Amazon at midnight when you want to order something, do it in your neighborhood. Yeah. And I think with the holiday season coming up, it's a great time to really be thinking about this because for so many of the retailers, it's the critical, it's the make or break time or year for them. So we'll be thinking about shopping locally year round, but especially coming up to the holiday season, think, is there a percentage, a portion of your holiday shopping this year and then extended to the whole year that you can commit to dedicating to local businesses? Um, sometimes I think it's hard to think about making a full shift, but can you shift 10%, 20%, 30%? I myself go for 100, but I think perfection is the enemy of the good. Make, make that shift at whatever level that you can and invest in, the, in your community. Thank you for listening to this important conversation, and I hope the conversation can continue. Thank you for listening to Always Andersonville, the podcast. For more information about Ellen and Community Allies, please visit communityallies.net. And to check out Women and Children First, you can visit them in person at 5233 North Clark or online at womenandchildrenfirst.com. Small Business Saturday is on November 26th this year. To learn more about this event and how you can support local businesses, please visit andersonville.org.